If you find yourself with a layover at Moscow's Shedometrovo International Airport and you have some time to spare, take some time to watch the news. Large flat-screen TVs are mounted all over the terminals proudly playing news in different languages, Arabic, French, English, and Spanish. But every television is tuned to the same channel, RT. RT, or Russia Today, as it's more formally known, is the powerhouse of Russia's international state-run media. It operates in five languages and is broadcast across the world, reaching an audience of millions. RT first broadcast in English, and when it began to diversify in 2007, the first language it added was Arabic. I've been to the RT studios in Moscow, and I've appeared on their programming. The channel's ambitions and its reach have been growing. The question we have to ask is, why? In this episode, we'll take a look at Russia's relationships with Israel and Iran. We'll also take a look at how some Arab states, particularly Egypt, view Russia. And we'll cover some of Russia's soft power tools in the Arab world. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And this is the Russia in the Middle East podcast miniseries. First, let's start with Israel. Elizabeth Cherkov is a fellow in the Middle East program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia, focusing on the Levant. She's also a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Cherkov says there's a shared sense among Israeli and Russian officials that Arabs and democracy shouldn't mix. Israeli officials, uh, particularly in the military establishment and uh, Russian officials, definitely share a kind of a very bleak view of uh, democracy in the in the Middle East, for example, in the Palestinian elections when Hamas uh, rose to power, uh, or when the elections in the post uprising uh, in Egypt, what we're seeing emerging in those uh, types of settings are Islamists coming to power, the Muslim Brotherhood in in Egypt and Hamas with the the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in the West Bank in Gaza. In this sense. Russia and Israel share views on how the Arab world should be governed. Both countries share kind of a very negative and I would say orientalist and even racist view of the appropriate system of government uh, for Arabs. I think that in the case of uh, Russia, the establishment there genuinely believes in uh, the authoritarian model. In Israel, this viewpoint leads to a sympathy toward Russia's approach to the region. I think that both the Israeli leadership and uh, Russia view uh, the Middle East very cynically and through a perception that is very much based on identifying threats as opposed to seizing opportunities and seeing what are some positive changes that may be happening in the region, what are some forces in the region who are pushing away from the authoritarian model who should be empowered. This is something that does not at all interest Israeli officials or uh, Russian officials. Even though Russia and Israel are not always natural allies, there are several different reasons why good relationship with Israel matters to Russia, says Cherkov. Israel has outsized power compared to its 
you know, even military capabilities. It is uh, quite influential in uh, in Washington, D.C. It has some influence in European capitals. And it is an actor that is incredibly willing to use force compared to other actors uh, in the region. But Russia's support of other parties, including Hamas, complicates Israel's relationship with Russia. The relationship with Iran, for example, the relationship with Hamas, even the desire to not be perceived in any way as kind of in the Israeli camp, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Russia consistently maintains, you know, a stance that is supportive of, of Palestinian demands and is hosted and met not only with Hamas, but even Palestinian Islamic Jihad officials, Palestinian militant group that is uh, supported, you know, almost entirely by Iran. So therefore, Russia definitely sees an importance in the relationship with uh, Israel, but it is not willing to uh, prioritize it over other, you know, equally and maybe even more important relationships that it established throughout the Middle East. Cherkov says that even though Israel matters to Russia, it doesn't leverage its soft power in Israel very effectively. Even Syria and the Israeli policy in Syria, for example, or the Israeli policy towards Iran or Russia, are not often discussed uh, in public, whereas issues pertaining to the Palestinians very much do. So therefore, I don't see any kind of a significant effort on the part of the Kremlin to try and use the fact that 10% of the Israeli population are you know, many many of us are Russian speakers, are people born in the USSR. So I don't see that effort playing on the ground. In fact, there are, you know, embassies in Israel, such as the American and Japanese and British and French, that constantly hold all sorts of events to the public. And Russia is much less active in this regard. Although Russian soft power in Israel is weak, many Israelis still want Russia to act as a buffer between them and Iran. Iran and Russia have an often tortured history that stretches back to imperial times. But in recent decades, Russia has emerged as one of Iran's protectors from the international community. As a permanent member of the UN Security Council, Russia has the ability to block international sanctions against Iran. Since Russia's intervention in Syria in 2015, Russian-Iranian relations have become more complex. The assessment at the time, both by Russian officials and Iranian officials, is that the regime would not be able to survive without significant additional military assistance from both of them, from both Russia and Iran, for longer than six months. So as a result, Qasem Soleimani, who was uh, killed earlier this year, traveled to Moscow to personally lobby Putin to intervene in the war, uh, to provide this uh, assistance to the Syrian regime so that Assad will be able to remain in power despite the extreme weakness of its ground forces and depletion of armor, depletion of the air force. In some ways, the Russian intervention in Syria improved relations with Iran. Moscow and Tehran closely coordinated their activities through a Joint Command and Intelligence Center in Baghdad. This pertains also to fighting against ISIS in Iraq. There's also uh, close cooperation on the ground between uh, Russian officers and advisors and Hezbollah fighters and fighters of other Iranian-backed Shia militias. This cooperation endowed these militias backed by Iran with uh, skills that they did not possess in the past and garnered uh, a great uh, deal of respect 
these Shia fighters enjoy the respect of Russians who comment about their fighting capacity, about their zeal, about their willingness to fight, which they contrast constantly with the poor state of the Syrian army, whose fighters are pressing into service. Many of them would defect uh, if it did not lead to immediate execution and are underfed, are underpaid. Their morale is extremely low. Russia is interested in returning Syria to the status quo ante, and Iran wants to exploit Syria as a platform for its own expanded regional influence. Russian and Iranian ambitions in Syria are beginning to diverge. On the strategic level, the relationship between Russia and Iran in Syria has been largely harmonious. Until, I would say, kind of more recent years, let's say starting 2018, 19, when the military victory of the regime became assured. Uh, And now both countries are competing for projects, the few profitable projects that exist on the ground, the few natural resources that are available in regime-held Syria. uh, And they're also competing for influence over the future trajectory of Syria. Despite growing tensions, both countries need the current system of power to stay in place. Even if not Bashar, personally, Russia and Iran are both not interested in having a democracy in Syria because you know, of what they've done in the country in the past years of you know, mass displacement and killing, destruction of hospitals, uh, besieging communities, all of that has not earned them much support among uh, the population. And as a result, any kind of a, a truly democratic system would threaten their uh, influence in the country. But their joint success in Syria may mean that their cooperation is coming to an end. While Russia remains a protector of Iran from the international community, their regional relations are still being decided. Russia maintains separate relations with Iran and Israel, two regional powers with a history of conflict. But Russia has also managed to strengthen its relationships with Arab states in the Middle East. Mohammed Anis Salim is an experienced Egyptian ambassador with over 35 years working in humanitarian relief operations, international development, and communication. I asked him how different groups within the Arab world view Russia. There was a moment when this question was part of a big divide in the Arab world. You had the progressive countries, the socialist countries, the led by Egypt of Nasser, who were postulating that the Soviet Union is a force for change, it is a force for liberation, and that there must be a big confrontation with the West, with colonialism, with capitalism, and so on. With another group saying that the Soviet Union means atheism, means bad development, means covering colonialist, expansionist objectives by ideological veneer. That big divide, that big debate, has been superseded now by another debate, which is to what extent are pragmatic goals achieved by cooperation with the big powers in the world? Countries in the Middle East are questioning what a U.S. withdrawal means for them, and if Russia can fill some of that role. And there is a school of thought, very strong now in the Gulf, that Actually, despite all of the problems with the United States, despite the disappointments and frustrations, that the U.S. 
as shown in the example of the liberation of Kuwait, is a reliable guarantor of Gulf security. Not everyone agrees. Some Arab states, like Egypt, are diversifying their alliance systems to avoid relying solely on one global power. And some are trying to play great powers off each other to elicit aid from all of them. I think in Egypt there has been, again, a history of trying all sorts of formulae in organizing or framing the relationship with Russia. During the Cold War, Egypt saw a partnership with the Soviet Union as a potential advantage. Some documents are showing us that at a certain moment, Gamal Abdel Nasser put on the table in Moscow having Egypt join the Warsaw Pact. And the Russians didn't agree to that. So you have from that moment, you have the a counter moment when Sadat kicks out the Russians, closes down the embassy, and becomes part of the anti-Soviet drive globally, particularly in Afghanistan. It is not a problem-free relationship, but it answers some of the needs. Egypt and other Arab states view Russia as an area of economic promise. In today's Egypt, a partnership with Russia presents opportunities in areas like tourism, arms sales, and education. For example, the biggest cohort of tourists coming to Egypt are from Russia. And because of this, one of the current problems is that the Russians have not sanctioned direct flights into Sharm el-Sheikh, which was one of their top destinations. Before 2015, Russians made up perhaps 40% of tourists to Egypt. Some went to the historic sites in the Nile Valley, but millions just headed to the beaches in Sinai and the Red Sea coast. After ISIS attacked a Russian jet over the Sinai in 2015, Russia banned flights to Egypt, and Russian tourism in Egypt plummeted. So one of the questions on the minds of Egyptians is that, why is Russia delaying this, and is this a pressure tactic used against Egypt. So the focus is very much on a pragmatic relationship, a relationship that provides benefits to both sides. Tourism makes up one reason why Egypt needs Russia. Arms purchases, a perennial goal of Egyptian foreign policy, are another. If you look at Egypt as a power that sees itself as a middle power regional state, attempting to play an extensive role, an influential role in this region, and thinking that its military posture is an important component of that role, then you see why this issue comes time and time again. To Egypt and other Arab states, Russia presents a welcome alternative to arms sales from the United States that come with stipulations. You have to look there at some changes in the international system where it is no longer a taboo to buy arms from Russia. It's not seen in the zero-sum game terms of the Cold Cold War. So places like Turkey, member of NATO, are buying arms from Russia. A willingness to sell weapons without regard for human rights concerns makes Russia an especially useful source of weapons for Middle Eastern governments stymied by restrictions enshrined in U.S. law. So that kind of openness has made it easier to approach 
Russia in this situation where it's a matter of a, a clear purchase. No longer are we looking at the old model where the Soviet Union used to give Egypt arms on long-term soft loans and grants and so on. That's, that's no longer the issue. Russia has also agreed to finance and build a nuclear power plant on the Mediterranean coast in Adaba, adding to Egyptian prestige and aiding the Egyptian economy. And on top of that, many Arab states also view Russia as a useful avenue for areas like education and skills training. The thing is that the demand for certain services has mushroomed in many countries with big populations like Egypt. So you have, for example, a very big group of young people finishing school and looking for places in universities, looking for training opportunities, looking for new skills. And I think the Russians have done a good job of focusing on a number of things. This is Russian soft power at work. One, we have a Russian university now in Cairo. We have a lot of these programs that if you look at them, they're looking at things like computer-assisted design. They're looking at design of computer software. And so I think the Russians have done a good job of focusing on some practical, low-cost deliverables that can be channeled. Like many aspects of Russian foreign policy, Russia's soft power approach is low-cost and opportunistic. The other area which I think the Russians have done extremely well is the whole area of media. So if you look at their Arabic-speaking television, RT, and if you look at the kind of news-generating organizations that they have, their penetration has become very, very high, particularly through social media. The United States is no longer as aggressive in this area, says Salem, and Russia is filling some of the gap. In the old days, I remember the American Library, part of the U.S. Embassy, was a very important uh, place to visit if you're a student at university. The Washington Institute's Anna Borshevskia, with whom we spoke in a previous episode, agrees. We've seen Russian propaganda outlets, chiefly RT and Sputnik, being very active in the region and being very active at messaging. And messaging is extremely important because it goes to the issue of narratives. And each country, each state has a narrative. The United States narrative, unfortunately, has been confused. It's been ambivalent. It's, been, it's often been hard to define just, just what exactly is the United States narrative in, in the region. The Russian narrative is very simple and it's very clear, and that has resonance. These soft power efforts, in addition to a media campaign, spill into other efforts as well, such as uh, educational exchanges, for example, in Iraq. When the West looks at Russia and Russian media, it tends to be suspicious. But that's not the case in the Middle East, says Borshevskia. By and large, the region simply doesn't look at Russia the same way. And if you add to this the fact that many in the region already perceive American outlets, Western outlets such as CNN, as government-run, which is not the case, but, but that's how they're often perceived, and you add this to the mixture of a very complex media environment and overall a, a situation where authoritarian governments already control the message, having yet another authoritarian government that also brings its own message. It's simply not troubling as it would be in a democratic setting where you have Western media outlets that are free that tend to be more dominant. That blend has made Russia's messaging surprisingly successful in the region. 
Russia has successfully managed to convince many that they fought ISIS. And therefore, from this image, what flows is, yeah, Russia may not be a perfect country, it's corrupt, but so are many other countries in this region. And if they're fighting ISIS, well, that, that's a benefit. And unfortunately, we all know that that's completely false, right? The serious analysts in the West have seen that Russia has not fought ISIS with any consistency. We're losing a war of narratives here. Ten years ago, the U.S. messaging was that the region was gasping for freedom. Russia's messaging seems to be the opposite, and it's succeeding. So this message of authoritarianism, it's a winning message because unfortunately throughout the Middle East, we're still seeing authoritarian governments as dominating. This is not to say that the people of the region do not yearn for freedom. But the messaging isn't merely aimed at the people of the region, says Borshevskia. It's aimed at governments as well. By and large, with notable exceptions, the region in and of itself is authoritarian, and therefore Russia has to convince the governments primarily of these countries. And in a situation where information is controlled, where conspiracy theories already proliferate, it's a lot easier to spin a false narrative. And this is where, so I I think it's a big failing of ours. We tend to underestimate just how important narratives are. Russia's messaging both to people and to governments influence how people in the Middle East see both Russia as a whole and Putin as its leader. Anis Salem again. I think that Putin comes across as an element of stability, continuity, somebody who brought his country back from the brink. So there is a certain element of respect. I always think that one needs to triangulate these things because the contrast becomes with the kind of leadership you see in Western countries. And we are at a moment when that leadership is in short supply in the West. So the contrast does work in favor of Putin. So I think that there is a certain attraction there. But there are certain drawbacks to Putin's approach, too. To some, Putin's vision of the future looks too similar to what the Middle East already has. Now, there are handicaps because nobody has heard Putin speak in English. So you're always hearing him through translation. You're always seeing him in a rather mystical way. It sort of fulfills the image of the one-person rule that many people in the Arab world want to step away from. Many people in the Arab world want to look towards democratic systems, uh, institutional uh, decision-making processes, people with an outreach towards them, people with sense of humor. And that grim kind of continence, I think, needs a little bit of a PR makeup. Russia has managed to maintain complex relationships with three major groups in the Middle East, Israel, Iran, and Arab states. Russia provides something to all three of them. For Israel, Russia shares many of their threat perceptions, and Russia has a similarly jaundiced view of how soon many of those threats might go away. Israel also hopes that Russia will play a constructive role curbing hostility from Israel's adversaries, including Syria and Iran. For Iran, Russia provides shelter and protection from the international community. Mutual involvement in Syria also creates areas of cooperation. And for Arab states like Egypt, Russia provides relief from U.S. hegemony, tourism revenue, 
and no strings attached arm sales, along with soft power educational opportunities and news outlets. Russia isn't trying to model the Middle East in its image. In many ways, it sees the Middle East as a compatible culture that similarly responds to hard-headed expressions of power. In this view, the United States wants the region to change, but Russia accepts the region as it is. Next time on the podcast, we look ahead to the future of Russia in the Middle East. I'm your host, John Alterman, and this is the Russia in the Middle East podcast miniseries. This series is brought to you by the Middle East program at CSIS, and CSIS is solely responsible for its content. All views, positions, and conclusions expressed here should be understood to be solely those of the people expressing them. This mini-series was made possible by generous support from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates. The series was produced and edited by Yumi Araki, written by McKinley Noop, and interviews and narration were conducted by me, John Alterman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.